So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 today and, um, and look into the meaning and the power of the Word of God. Nothing could be less true than the playground taunt, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Amazing, though words are immaterial, having neither mass nor weight, they carry great force for both good and bad. Uh, The 4th of July provides a clear example of the power of words, words that echo for 244 years. Uh, Thomas Jefferson writing, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Words that echo and shape our culture, our thinking, and our arguments to the present moment as we struggle to live up to those great ideals as a nation. As Proverbs 25.11 says, one of my favorite Proverbs, it says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. How true this is, amen? Think of the many words that you enjoy because of the power of their phrasing or their cadence, their rhythm, their clarity, and most of all, their meaning. Think of the lyrics of the songs that you enjoy, how they affect you, how they stir you up, how they influence your mood and change your thinking, and how you simply like them. You like the way the words sound. Words don't just go out into the ether and and, and disappear. Words do things. Personally, words, both good and bad, have played an, an immense role in every life here. Words of encouragement or of rebuke, words of love or of anger, some words that we have not forgotten uh, to this present moment that have been spoken to us in our past, and we are shaped by those words very much the result of all the many words that have been spoken to us. But we are not talking today about the mere common power of words. We are going to look at words that carry actual power within them. In ancient days, as in the days of the Old Testament, the word of a king carried great power. Ecclesiastes 8.4 states the reality of the matter. It says, the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Today we consider the power of an even greater authority, the word of the king of kings. So I invite you to stand today. Uh, for the reading of God's word and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Now note, last week we actually covered verse 11, but we're going to read it in today's reading because it's a natural segue to the, to the uh, words of verses 12 through 13. So I invite you to stand today as we read the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the writer of Hebrews, says, verse 11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no no creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for scripture today. Lord, we have a scripture that's going to lead us to talk about scripture, its power and its meaning and its authority in our lives and the way that it searches our hearts and knows us. So Father, I pray that you would speak to us clearly. I pray that you would give us uh, grace as we are challenged and comforted uh, by the clarity of the word of God. I pray that you would draw our hearts near to you and that you would be glorified in us this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So today we will be considering the power of the living word of the living God. And we will see that the word of God is alive, that the word of God is penetrating, and that the word of God is heart-knowing. But before we even get that far, we should not skip over the massive assumption, the presupposition that the writer, or perhaps more accurately, the preacher of Hebrews, um, scholars tell us that that it it is perhaps most likely that the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon from the early church that a preacher uh, uh, gave to a congregation of former uh, Jews who had put their faith in Christ and were um, in danger of wandering from the gospel. So the preacher makes this massive assumption in these words that we shouldn't skip over before we talk about the word of God as alive and penetrating and heart-knowing. He simply says, for the, the word of God is. And we have to stop there, and we have to look at that phrase, the word of God, because there's nothing... Um, uh, th- th- this is not a incontroversial controversial claim. This is not a widely accepted fact or reality uh, of what the Word of God is. So in our moment, in, in any culture at any moment, it is right to stop and say what is meant by the, the phrase, the Word of God. What does the writer of Hebrews mean by the Word of God? It's crucial to understand what he refers to here because it has great implications for our our theology. A theology is just what we think about God, and every person thinks about God. Every believer especially thinks and, and ponders and meditates on God, and so every believer is a theologian. Every one of us... Um, uh, has an understanding of what God is and who God is and how he reveals himself to us. The word in the Greek here for word is logos. The logos of God is living and active, which has led some commentators to believe that the reference here is to Jesus himself in the, in the same way that the person of the word of God is mentioned in John 1. 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. However, without lessening the importance of Jesus as the Logos of God at all, it seems rather that the writer is referring rather to the Word that is about the capital W, Word of God, that is the Word about Jesus, i.e. the Scriptures that speak to us about Jesus. 
Where do we see this? Well, this is clear in the context. The last couple Sundays, we've been in Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. And that whole time, the writer, the preacher of Hebrews has been unpacking uh, Psalm 95. The, the, the writer, the preacher of Hebrews is doing here, there, what we do every Sunday, which is to read God's word and to unpack it and to point us to Jesus from the scriptures. And from verse 7 in chapter 3, all the way through today's words, the preacher of Hebrews is dealing with Psalm 95. And it's in that context that he says, the word of God is active and living. And he introduces Psalm 95. Several weeks ago, we noted this. If you go back just a chapter, you'll notice that he introduces Psalm 95 with this preface. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, meaning the writer believes that the words of Psalm 95 are the very words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 95 itself, if you go back, he doesn't quote all of Psalm 95. He spends most of his time in the second half of that psalm. But it's interesting, if you go back to Psalm 95, Psalm 95 underscores the point uh, that, the, uh, that, uh, that the writer in Hebrews is saying. For Psalm 95 verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a king above all gods. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, today, if you hear his voice, that is the voice of of the Lord God, the voice of the King of all gods, the voice of the King of Israel, the King of Kings. Amen? The writer of Hebrews picks up that phrase, today, if you hear his voice, and like a preacher who can't let something go, he just goes over it over and over again. Three times he quotes that phrase in in chapter 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 7, claiming that the Holy Spirit says now, he says today, if you hear his voice. And the writer is equating the voice of the Lord God, the King, our maker, with the words given to us in Scripture by the Holy Spirit. Andrew Murray, the 19th century preacher and writer, commenting on these verses, says beautifully about uh, Hebrews 3 verse 7. He says that the writer, he regards that psalm as simply the language of the Holy Spirit. He looks upon the scriptures as truly inspired by God. God breathed because men spake from God, being moved by the Holy Ghost. He regards them as the very voice of God. And attaches to the words all the weight of divine authority and all the fullness of meaning they have in the divine mind. So even though Psalm 95 was written by a man, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the words coming through that psalmist are in fact the words of God as well. And so that writer of Psalm 95, he had a meaning in mind to his audience. But God also had a meaning in mind to his audience, and his word there is to believers, not just to Israel then, but to believers now, to strive to enter the rest that God provides in Christ. Amen. This is a wonderful truth. This is a precious truth to know that God has spoken. The writer of Hebrews 
if, if you go through the book of Hebrews carefully, you will notice that he does this over and over again. This is how he approaches the entirety of the Old Testament. There are 303 verses in the book of Hebrews. And in that space, the preacher directly quotes from the Old Testament 36 times, covering 11 different books of the Old Testament. But especially, he loves the Psalms. And he quotes from the Psalms 18 times. And each time, not each time, but most time, many times that he's quoting from the Old Testament, it just rolls off his tongue to say, and God said, or and he said, and he quotes the Old Testament. In 1977, uh, NASA sent the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecrafts to explore the solar system. That is, before most of us in this room were born, those spacecrafts were launched into space to explore the solar system. And they are now in interstellar space, which is really amazing when you think about it. They are in the space between star systems, as it were, within a galaxy. So the Voyager 1 or 2, I can't remember which one, but they're over 100 astronomical units from the sun, which is an astronomical unit, is the space, is the distance approximately 150, millimeter, 150 million kilometers from the sun to the earth. And so Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are both 100 times farther than that from the sun. And they're traveling. Both of them carry with them a golden record. I don't know if you've heard of this before. But under the, 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 the uh, direction of Carl Sagan, the great scientist and writer, they put on both Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 a old school phonograph record. Not made of vinyl, made of gold so that it would not decay. In case of being discovered by an advanced civilization, the records on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have 114 images on them recorded on the disc and words from President Jimmy Carter at the time, and the words of a child in English saying, hello from the children of earth. Music selections from Bach and Mozart, Beethoven, Blind Willie Johnson, the blues player, and Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. Some objected to the rock and roll on the album, saying that it was too adolescent, and Carl Sagan replied, well, there are lots of adolescents on the planet. Indeed, and it had much more on it. The act is symbolic, I think, that humanity is longing for a message from the outside. Imagine such a message from the heavens reaching us today. One of my favorite sci-fi movies, Contact, is all about this, about the search for extraterrestrial uh, uh, intelligence, right? And in that film, all that they receive from outer space is a radio signal that has a pattern, and not a cyclic repeating pattern like in nature, but a pattern that has information in it. And, it, and, it, and, and the reception of that message changes the world, and, and they try to decode that message and understand that message and, and understand what... The, uh, uh, what is the word from the outside? To finally know, many people, our neighbors, our friends, our community, the people we work with, want to know that we, that they are not alone in the universe. Well, the writer of Hebrews is supposing that we have exactly 
such a word. Not the word of another civilization, however advanced, but from the creator of the universe himself. As it says in Psalm 95, let us kneel before the Lord our maker today if you hear his voice. In the words of Francis, Francis Chafer, God is there and he is not silent. As believers, we are those who believe that God has spoken, that God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. From where or from whom did the writer of Hebrews learn this understanding of Scripture? Where do we, where do we believers get our understanding of Scripture? Have we made it up? Have we, in our search for clarity, in our search for certainty, are we just clinging to an ancient book that we can't let go of? But no, the reason we hold to the Scriptures is because we hold to Jesus and Jesus held to the scriptures. Jesus taught his apostles this understanding of the Bible. There are three main things that Jesus himself taught the apostles about the Old Testament scriptures. One, he taught them clearly that the Old Testament is the word of God. Jesus never, not even hints, nor, nor uh, 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 um, uh, there, there's not a hint of uh, uh, of unbelief or doubt in Jesus' words that every word of the Old Testament is true. There's not a hint in Jesus' words that Jesus didn't believe that every word of the Old Testament was perfect and good and righteous. Jesus also believed that the word of God, as he says in John 10, 35, cannot be broken. Jesus says that. He says, Scripture cannot be broken. But every word will be fulfilled. And three, Jesus made this massive claim. The scriptures are all about him. They point us to Christ. In every way, the preacher of Hebrews handles scripture in the same way that Jesus did. And the writer is urging us in these verses to do the same. The fact that Psalm 95 is the very word of God means that we should hear it all the more. It's just not, it's not the exhortation of someone who's just trying to, who's just trying to you know, um, uh, uh, correct us in some, in some small manner. It is, in fact, the very word of God. This is a truth that we need to return to regularly. How do we receive the scriptures? Do you receive them as the living word of God? As active and powerful as clear and understandable, as rightfully knowing and correcting us. So we turn then to the, the words of the writer. It is that the writer says that this word is the word of God and is therefore living, penetrating, and all-knowing. What does it mean for Scripture to be these things? So the first statement, for the word of God is living and active. How is the word of God living and active? First, it is living and active because it is the word of the living God. In other words, the God who is a speaking God and continues to speak through Scripture. The words are not merely an ancient artifact. One of the reasons that the Bible is controversial, rejected, 
not, not, not addressed or taught just like another document from the ancient world is because it clearly speaks with power. It clearly confronts the human heart and brings every human heart to, to a, a point of rejection or acceptance, to some kind of response. So almost everyone, when they handle the, the, the scriptures, understand its liveliness, that there's a voice that speaks through it and that confronts us. We acknowledge fully that the scriptures are human words, but more so, they are written by men, as 2 Peter 1.21 says, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second, it is living and active because it is a word that is sufficient and effective to accomplish the purpose of the living God who speaks it. Remember, words do things. Our words, when they go into the ears of another person, impact, influence, change that other person, either toward us or away from us. Our words matter. How much more then do the words of the living God do things and matter? The prophet Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah 55, 10 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is seen most clearly in the opening chapters of the Bible, right? In Genesis and creation, where God speaks and it happens. Let there be light and there was light. But it's also seen in Christ. It may not seem as instantaneous, but Jesus said himself in Matthew's gospel, 518, he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And it happened. The thing that the prophets foretold, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the words of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the thing that they foretold, the king of kings coming as a suffering servant to die for his people and rise again and initiate the kingdom of God happened in Christ. God's word brought it to be. He spoke it. When Jesus was there, he literally was unpacking to them what God was doing in their midst and telling them what was going to happen. And yet the events were just going on. The people all around Jesus to whom he was trying to explain these things were fulfilling Jesus's, uh, the, the words of the Old Testament even though they were making their own choices and carry responsibility for their actions and events. God was at work and brought it all to about, about in an astonishing and surprising and startling way so that the king of Israel, the king of kings, is crucified by his own people and the Romans together, fulfilling the words of God to his own people in a surprising and astonishing way. And of course, the most astonishingly accomplished when on the third day he rose from the grave telling just as he said on the third day I will rise again according to scripture amen so God gave us his word and God brought it to pass
Moving to the second part of verse 12, we see that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow. What does it mean for the word of God to be sharp? Well, the image is pretty clear here. A two-edged sword being the most, one of the most effective weapons of the day. Uh, ed, uh, edges on both sides of the, of the blade made, of course, to do that, to cut, to slash, to penetrate. Well, I, I think first that, the, that a major implication here, not necessarily the main point, but flows from it, is that the scriptures, to follow the analogy provided here, as every two-edged sword has, comes to a point Namely, it is clear. We hold and, and confess that the scriptures are basically clear. That, that though the Bible is not a short book, nor without its challenges or difficulties or mystery, it is nevertheless a story that can be understood in its broad outlines and a word of God that can be comprehended by all. In other words, one of the we believe that every believer can have, should have a copy of the Bible, can read the Bible, that all people, we, want, we, we give away Bibles here, we want to get Bibles into people's hands because we believe the Bible is clear and is powerful and that God speaks through it. And this is because we believe that the Bible reveals fundamentally rather than conceals. The, God, the Bible shows us what God thinks about us. The Bible reveals to us himself, uh, or God himself. It gives us what God thinks about creation and his plan for humanity. So in the broad outlines, we teach these things even to our children. Not that they themselves, we're reading the Bible for them, we're unpacking it for them, but we understand that the Bible gives us this great, epic, true story of a good creator who made the world good and of a, a, a humanity, Adam and Eve, who rejected the word of God and rebelled against their creator and fell into sin. But that good God loved them and chose a people, Israel, to, to make as a model uh, for, for the kind of world that he wanted to create. But even that people fell into decline because of their sin and went into exile. And in the midst of that exile, God himself came into the world. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King coming into the world. And he went to the cross and the King was crucified for the sins of his people. And as the apostles went everywhere preaching in the book of Acts, this is a clear word from God and all people everywhere will be judged based on their response to this word. Amen? But further, it is sharp because it cuts. All of us know what I'm talking about here. All of us believers have read the word of God and been reading along and we've read a verse and when we read it, it cuts us to the heart, to the quick, penetrates us and convicts us. It penetrates our defenses. The writer says it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Now, he's not making a psychological point about how man is made up or a biological or literal point. The writer is simply saying that the word of God is capable of penetrating into things that humans don't know how to separate, namely, the very inner recesses of the human heart. 
If we hear it in our sin, we reject it. We don't reject it because it confuses us. We reject it because it's clear and in our sin, we don't like it. Because the declaration and announcement that Jesus is Lord demands that we give up lordship of ourselves. And this is a word that none of us want to hear in our sin. Amen? Right? Parents know what I'm talking about. Right? Trying to direct little children, figuring out when they are young, uh, who gets to decide uh, what happens and when, right? Like bedtime, right? Do children naturally acquiesce to the lordship of their parents at bedtime? All the parents with young children are laughing. In our sin, we reject it, but by the grace of God, it's by the grace of God that the scriptures cut in and cut open and paradoxically, like a surgeon, save by cutting, opening the eyes of our hearts to see plainly the goodness of God and the truth of the gospel. And even though it cuts us at first, we turn and by grace, we love it And we delight in it because it saves us. It is only natural then as the word of the living God to see next that the word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the the heart. It is not we who know ourselves better than God. It is not we who can stand in the place to judge over the scriptures. No, the word of God stands over us. This is clear, uh, especially in the Greek. The word in Greek behind the word discerner, the the word of God is a discerner, uh, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart, is the word kritikos, from which we get our word critic, and criticize, and criticism. And to put it bluntly, the writer is saying we don't get to be the critic, rather God's word is our critic. A number of translations picture this for us. The New English Bible says it's the word of God sifts the purposes and thoughts of the heart. That is, it separates the wheat from the chaff. It, it sorts out what's good and what's bad. And, and, and uh, uh, the translation of the New Testament by James Moffat says it scrutinizes the very thoughts and conceptions of the heart. But the main background of the word here is actually a, a legal one, one from the courts. Scripture is kritikos. That is, it is able to judge us And specifically here, because it is a living, active, sharp, and penetrating, it goes down deep and it will judge us rightly. That when we are confronted and convicted by the word of God, we have to trust that God knows us, our thoughts, our purposes, and our motives far better than we do. Amen. Now those are, those are hard words. Those are, those are, uh, the, the, the context is, is one in which it's encouraging. God has spoken. The word of God is living and active and it is powerful, but the word of God confronts us and the word of God penetrates our hearts and the word of God convicts us of our sin. But we are to see here that this is all by the goodness of the Lord. That this is all in the spirit of Proverbs 3, 10, where the writer of Proverbs, Proverbs speaking to his son says, for the Lord disciplines whom he loves. 
My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines whom he loves as a, as a father, the son, in whom he delights. The scriptures are evidence of God's delight in his people. The scriptures are evidence that God loves us enough to tell us about himself, to tell us why he made us, to tell us what he has in store for us in the future, that the work that he is doing is far greater than we can ever imagine or think. Amen. To drive this point home, that, that, that the scriptures are discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart, the writer goes on the next verse in pretty stark terms. He says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The meaning is clear. Now, I, I read these words and I, I love the movie Lord of the Rings and I love the books. And when I see this, I always think of the eye of Sauron. Do you know what I'm talking about? The massive fireball eye that searches out the land and is trying to find the hobbits and the king and destroy them. And I think that one of the things that the enemy of our soul would like us to do is to see God as the eye of Sauron who is searching for our faults so that he can highlight them and expose us and destroy us. But that's not God's intention. That is exactly what the devil does. The Bible tells us that the devil is an accuser. Satan is like the eye of Sauron to spy us out so that we can be exposed and the orcs uh, 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 of the world, the orcs of our sin can hunt us down and destroy us. If you don't know what orcs are, you just have to, they're really gross. You just have to watch the movie or read the book, even better. But God is not like that. The God who knows everything is inescapable and these verses grab us and they pull our eyes toward that moment in our future when we will give account to God. And it's true that his eyes are inescapable. We may keep our secrets from our neighbors, we may hide our thoughts from our family or even our best friend or our spouse. But it is not finally to one another nor to our own conscience that we must answer. Rather, we will give account to God. These are stark words. Naked, opened, exposed. They're reminiscent of Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and in sinning, discovered their nakedness. This looks despairing. This sounds like the eye of Sauron. I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right. Sauron. Till we remember that in Genesis 3, God himself killed an animal and clothed Adam and Eve because he loved them. And God covered their nakedness. There's also a word from a cross where the Son of God who fulfilled Scripture like we've talked about hung himself naked and exposed for us. Father, forgive them, he cried and prayed. They know not what they do. It is finished, he cried to the Father. 
and he hung his head and died. Our own nakedness, the exposure of our own sin is both made plain at the cross, we have nothing to hide, and it is completely covered if today you will hear his voice and believe. The very next words of Hebrews 4, which we will hear next Sunday, are going to take this to the same Jesus and show us that the living word of the living God is the bringer of good news. That the living word that is active, that is penetrating, that is heart-knowing, is a gospel word. It is a good word that Jesus is Lord. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the word of God today. We thank you for meeting with us. Lord, you said that you would never leave us nor forsake us. You said that um, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We thank you for giving us the Bible. I pray, Father God, that as we go into our week, that you would give us a fresh romance of the word, that you would put in our hearts uh, a, a, a new delight in scriptures, Lord, a, a fresh commitment to dive into the Bible regularly, to hear your voice, Lord, to be confronted and to be drawn closer to you through the word of God. I pray, Lord, as the word of God confronts us, though, that we would hear a word of comfort that is Christ that comes to us, that we receive Jesus through the scriptures, through the truth of the gospel. So let us, Lord, go into our week with confidence and let us believe in this word of grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.